0: You're listening to the Golden West Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I explore the best in food and wine on the West Coast, including California, Oregon, and Washington. We're about to go on a journey, exploring the people and stories behind the vineyards, farms, and kitchens. So grab a drink, fire up your grill, pull up a seat to the table, and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they're known for single origin coffees, and they're committed to long term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I always start my day off with a cup or two. I make it by hand with a pour over, but it doesn't matter how you make yours. You can use a pour over, maybe use a Chemex, maybe you just use a basic Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You don't want those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find in the grocery store, and I don't even bother with that store brand stuff. So here's what you do. I'm going to make it really easy for you. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our promo code, Golden West. You'll get $5 off your first purchase. Do it now while you're thinking about it, and your coffee will show up at your doorstep as soon as you know it. Today in the show, we have Andy Erickson. Andy is the winemaker for Highest Beauty, a wine from the Tokelon Vineyard Company. He's also a winemaker and consultant for several other brands in the Napa Valley. Enjoy my conversation with Andy. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's going to be fun. Well, it's great having you here. So people who know you from, you know, many wines throughout the years and you're the winemaker at the Tokelon Vineyard Company, we're here to talk about this exciting wine and the past vintage and some of the ones up and coming. But first, let's get into you know your background and how you came up as a winemaker.
1: Well, I have to say my story is one of the classic sort of uh, right place at the right time kind of things. I, I grew up in the Midwest uh, in Indiana and uh, moved around a little bit as a kid. Uh, California, when I was very young, that was actually before Indiana, I went to school on the east coast, went to Tufts University, but really sort of uh fell in love with wine uh on a summer program in France when I was uh after my junior year of college I went and did an international relations program in France and I was very lucky to live with this family who wonderful people, they were just bon vivants, they had a wine cellar of probably three thousand bottles of wine, basically underneath the backyard of their home, and uh, we would cook outside every night and pick out a few bottles and and I just remember coming back from that summer thinking, you know, I still don't really know what I want to do with my life, but I want to live like that, and I didn't really know what that meant in terms of you know a profession, but I was very lucky to then move to the Bay Area. My sister was living here; she's a couple years older than me, and. Moved out here with a couple of buddies from Tufts. None of us were from the Bay Area. And I just fell in love with San Francisco and the Bay Area. And, you know, growing up in the Midwest, I, I had grown up around agriculture. I mean, we were surrounded by farms. We, we were not farmers ourselves, but I, I've always loved being outdoors. And, and, you know, the more I came up to Napa and Sonoma, I just fell in love with the area. And I just sort of decided I was going to give it a shot. And, uh, long story short, I ended up in Napa in 1994 and, uh, just started working in the cellars and eventually went back to UC Davis. But really I just moved here because I thought it was so beautiful. And it was funny. I, I just had this thought that anywhere I had ever been in the world where they grew grapes and made wine was a beautiful place. So at, you know, bare minimum, I was going to live in a beautiful place wherever I ended up. So that's kind of how it started.
0: Yeah, that's I mean, when you take a career path like you've done here, it's that's something always in the back of your mind where, you know, at least you're going to be working outdoors and in probably one of the most beautiful places in the world, depending on the vineyard and the area you're in. So let's talk a little about a couple of wines that inspired you early on or a couple of mentors you had in the past. You've talked about Dallavalli the uh, 1991 Maya. So let's get into kind of, you know, wines that inspired you first.
1: Gustav Dalla Valle was one of the pioneers in Napa um, during the sort of cult wine wave, which, you know, the term came later, but um, he arrived in Napa. That's a whole other story. But, you know, for me arriving uh, in 94, so backing up a little bit, I had this crazy idea that um, before I moved to Napa, I I really wanted to travel through uh, Central and South America. I have quite a few friends uh, from years past who are from, you know, Brazil, Argentina, El Salvador, other places, um, and so I I spent almost a year and a half traveling through Central and South America. I ended up in Argentina working for almost a year um, with the Catena family in their in their vineyards in Mendoza, and I was just very lucky one day during harvest, Paul Hobbs showed up on the crush pad. And of course, I had heard his name many times over the year, but i never met him. And he showed up and, he, you know, he just said, well, when you get back to California, let me know and I'll help you find a, a harvest job there. So I ended up working two harvests in 94. Uh, the second one being at Stag's Leap Wine Cellars, where Paul was consulting with them and uh, worked the harvest there. It was a great entry job into Napa you know, I got to learn a bit about the history of the Paris tasting and, you know, some of that early history of the, the new, new era of Napa, you know, from the sixties and seventies. And then right after harvest, I got lucky again, I guess the word lucky is going to come up a lot in this interview, but someone told me, Hey, there's a position open at Newton vineyards up on spring mountain. Um, you should call the winemaker, John Konsgard. So I did that. And, uh, Had never been up there and had never met John, but I just uh, arrived up on the hill up there. And John Konsgard—I don't know if you know him or have heard about him, but he's just a legend in Napa Valley. Really is in tune with nature and the farming and the just the. So, got to spend a year working there, and just a really great way to sort of start my career because he just really taught me a holistic view of what's happening and how things are different in the seasons and how, you know, there's a busy season and there's a there's a quiet season. And, you know, I was new, so I was always trying to like push ahead and do more. And I just remember during the winter one uh one day when I had come up with a way to rack the barrels twice as quickly and he said, You don't understand this is the this is the quiet season. This is where you enjoy it and and there's a slow pace to it. And anyway, I always remember that. But um you know, so I had arrived in, in the mid nineties, which, uh, again, a, a time where all this stuff was happening with small producers and Screamy Eagle had started and Dalla Valley with the Maya wines had started. And, and I remember tasting some of these early wines, even the Behringer private reserve wines back then were very heralded. And, Just tasting these wines and the the 1991 Maya was one of those wines where I tasted it and I just thought, Oh my God, what is this? This is, uh, this is different. This is incredible. And, uh, you know, fast forward 15 years later, I'm, you know, even more, I'm I'm working with the vineyard and making the wines now. So that's really great. But I, you know, I was poor college grad out of college. So my wine knowledge had started with like inexpensive, uh, Chilean and Argentine wines, and uh, going to Cost plus in San Francisco and buying you know inexpensive wines, so arriving in Napa and being exposed to some of these these new wines that were you know making a splash was was pretty incredible so i you know different story, but i I really sort of got swept up in that after I came back from u c Davis so I ended up going to u c Davis and getting a master's degree um finishing that in two thousand. So, um, you know, just came, came back and started working again and just swept up in some pretty cool projects.
0: Yeah. And and let's briefly touch on your personal label that you have with your
1: wife, um, and kind of how that came about and the AVA that you're located. So our winery is, is Favia and it's fun because, you know, we started it, I, we used to refer to it as our, our wine project or our wine label, but now I, refer to it as the family winery because we, um, like I said, we have purchased an old historic property in Coombsville, um, which was settled in the 1870s, um, vineyards planted out here in Coombsville. And uh, the winery was built in 1886, a little stone cellar with a residence upstairs, really cool piece of Napa Valley history. And you know, I always say I would have loved to have been around back in the 1870s, 1880s, 90s, because, I mean, Napa was booming back then. There were so many incredible wineries and people growing grapes in the valley. And then, of course, it all got shut down by prohibition. But um, our little winery from the 1880s. So now we um, we make our Favia wines here. We live here. So with the Favia wines, we're making small production, single vineyard uh, wines, a Cabernet from Coombsville, a Cabernet from Oakville, and then two Cabernet Franc blends. We love Cabernet Franc. So one is from Coombsville, one's from Oakville. And then we have a few little wines as well that we make for our mailing list, but it's really turned into a great little business for us. And uh, But I still enjoy working with other wineries and other properties. There's just so many incredible things happening in the Valley. And you know I love Napa. I've been here almost well, this will be my 27th vintage, I think. So, wow, quite a while. And, uh, yeah. Uh, and, and we're going to get into highest beauty here.
0: Um, you mentioned, you know, you like working with Cobb Franc and you, I was thinking about the Maya wine. I didn't want to interrupt you there, but how it's a blend of Cabernet Sauvignon and uh Cabernet Franc. Is that right?
1: That's right. Yeah. So Maya, uh, is the blend from Dalla Valley vineyards. That's, uh, Usually a little more Cabernet Sauvignon than Cabernet Franc, say 60-40, but um, that's coming from those eastern hills of Oakville. So on the opposite side of Tokelon, up in those red hills, which is another just really compelling area for Bordeaux varieties. And yeah, it's been great. So
0: the name of the company is Tokelon Vineyard Company, and the name of the wine is Highest Beauty. We can first get into kind of Tokelon and you know, when I first saw this, I, I was pronouncing it like two Kalan, or I didn't know, really know how to pronounce it. And then I, I finally kind of figured it out. And there may be people out there who don't know. So let's go into this a very brief history of probably, if not the most special site, one of the top, you know, special sites in, in all of Napa Valley, maybe even all of California and in the world.
1: Yeah, so Tokalon Vineyard is one of those very, very special sites, and you know it's been made famous in the past twenty years, let's say, with you know what first what Robert Mondavi was doing even before that, but then a lot of the small producers um, making wine from Andy Beckstoffer's part of the vineyard really sort of helped to elevate the name. But the history of Tokalon goes way back, and as I was saying before, I'm sort of a Napa Valley history buff, so. Um, I had always known the, well, not always, but I'd learned the history of Tokelon years ago. And I'm not sure if you know Graham McDonald, but Graham's sort of the keeper of the history of Tokalon. So you have yeah, a lot yeah. of the old ephemera and labels and things from way back in the 1870s, 80s, 90s. So, um, you know, most people know it for the wines that are being made now. But in fact, way back in the early days of Napa Valley... Tokalon wines were known around the country and even the world for being um, some of the best wines made in in the U.S. And so H.W. Crabb was the founder of the vineyard and he came to California and did a little bit of gold digging, but ended up, uh, you know, getting into farming, ended up in Napa Valley in the 1860s, planted vineyards, and pretty quickly his wines were renowned. And you know, he passed away, and then the, the next owners built a winery called Tokalon Wine Company. And there was a pretty big winery on the property. They made wines. They had their own wine shops, actually, on the East Coast, and uh, I think in New Orleans they had one. And you know, these wines were known. And if you see the old. Uh, labels. It's just such an. It's such a cool uh, imagery and graphic. It's just old, old timey California, you know. So, the vineyard is fairly big. You know, it's about five hundred acres, and it uh, surrounds the winery. That's Farniente. Farniente is sort of an island in the middle there, and that's that's part of the history of Tokalon as well. But I won't go too far into that. But basically uh back in gosh I guess two thousand sixteen, I was contacted by constellation about uh creating a small production wine that would elevate uh the name and the vineyard tokelon. They wanted to take a new approach with the vineyard and it and it really only took about forty five seconds into the conversation when i said well yeah i I want to know more about this and and so we met a few times and I was just very adamant that it would be, you know, very much about the vineyard, very focused on the viticulture and the winemaking. And it wasn't going to be purely a marketing thing. You know, we wanted to concentrate on the vineyard and and we've done that. So it's great. So the first vintage is the 2016 and the the wine is called The Highest Beauty, which is more or less the translation of the Greek word tokalon, which... Um, people say you could write a whole dissertation on what exactly it means, but it, it refers to the pursuit of the highest beauty. And that was something that H.W. Crabb talked about, that he was really dedicated to, you know, finding the best wine on his property. So it's cool that it goes back that far. So the idea with Tokelon Vineyard Company is we're drawing from that history and we're drawing from the old labels and uh, ephemera. And creating a wine that really sort of captures what the vineyard's all about. And uh yeah, the the first one is just out there, 2016.
0: Yeah, and you talked about some of the history there. So people can go back and read if they're curious and maybe hopefully while they're sipping on on highest beauty and, and read into some of the history if that's something they're interested in, which I know a lot of people are. Some people don't care and they just want to enjoy the wine, which is which is fine too. Obviously, and that's great. But you know, you mentioned McDonald family, uh, Detert family, I believe, and you know how Farniente is, is kind of there, right in the middle of <laughs> of the whole property. Uh, but they don't have you know kind of fruit there, so it's there's so much to kind of unpack and uh, and kind of look into on the history in between Beckstoffer and Mandavi and a lot of people who visited Napa. Driving up 29, you can see. Uh, Tokel on there on the left when you're driving up, and um you know you see Mendavi and Bextoer and <laughs> the kind of the dividing line there in the middle um so it's it's pretty prominent to be able to kind of see at right maybe about halfway as you're driving through napa so um let's get into you know a little bit about the site, so like soil types and kind of uh, just the the land itself. So a lot of people are familiar with kind of the valley floor versus hillside vineyards. And then, you know, you can go deeper than that with fluvial and alluvial and different types of soils. But let's talk just kind of generally about, you know, the the lay of the land as you've seen it and worked with it for this particular wine.
1: Right. So just to sort of put things in perspective with the Napa Valley. So, you know, Napa Valley is pretty much a north-south valley and on the east side, you have the Vaca Mountains, which is a very arid, all volcanic uh, range that separates uh, Napa from the Central Valley, basically. And then on the west side, you have the Mayakamas Mountains, which separate Napa from Sonoma and and really separate from the Pacific Ocean. So the, the Mayakamas Mountains are heavily wooded. You have the the fog and the weather coming in from the ocean. So there's a lot of geology that I won't get into, but Tokelon is at the foot of the Mayakamas mountains. So, uh, you mentioned alluvial soils. I mean, Tokelon would be considered one of those alluvial fans and an alluvial fan is basically where the soils have been deposited by, you know, many, many millennia of, of water coming down the mountain and washing these stones and soil into the valley. So, you can imagine in the middle of the valley where the river is, the soils are deep and there's lots of clay and silt, but then along the edge, along the mountains, you have still these gravel patches and, um, being such a large vineyard, you have these sort of underground rivers, almost underground creeks. So on the surface, in some areas, you do see, um, a lot of gravel and, uh, some rocky areas, but then other areas of the vineyard where you're walking, you would say, Oh, it's just sort of a clay loam, you know, nothing special, but then you dig down five, six feet and it's just rocky and gravelly. And, you know, the vines, you want the vines to get their roots down just enough so that um, they're tapping into that water down there, but it also is very well drained so that, you know, the vines can grow just to a certain point. And then the fruit is very concentrated and so that's why hillside vineyards are sought after, um, because, you know, you're not getting a large crop off the, the vineyard, but the fruit is very concentrated and the wines are really compelling. So in Tokelon, you have sort of the best of both worlds where you're, you're farming on this, you know, relatively flat spot, but the soils are almost like a hillside soil because, you know, you're going way down and, uh, the, the roots are able to just tap into water, but then it dries up later in the season. And it's just this recipe for making great concentrated wines. The tannins are really soft. So, you know, great thing for me is I've been able to really explore the vineyard and pick out different vineyard blocks. And, you know, we're now in our fourth or fifth vintage this year, and, and we're really down to fine tuning. And, uh, you know, we've gone from one wine to now we're going to release three different wines with the 18 vintage, which is going to be fun.
0: Yeah, and we're going to get into those wines here in a second. You mentioned the um sourcing from different blocks and on the website here it looks like there's eight blocks. Talk about you know the blocks that you're sourcing from and some of the rootstock or maybe clones or, or give some people some insight there.
1: So it's great because the you know the vineyard when you drive by and look at it, it just looks like a sea of vines, right? You wouldn't know that within that there's probably I don't know, 40 or 50 uh, distinct vineyard blocks, which are different clone and rootstock combinations. So we've got, um, you know, and we, we, the great thing is we, we produce more wine than we, we bottle for the project. So I have certain blocks that I work with. We produce wine from all of them. And then we really take the cream off the top for, for the bottling. And so I'm working with, I think, 14 different blocks now, um, the 16 blend was uh, – seven. I have seven here that um, ended up gluing into the the blend. So one of them is called the Twilight Block, and this is a block that Robert Mondavi really loved. This is uh, basically just to the north of Farniente, and um, there is one of these underground rivers, really, that runs through there. So on the surface, it looks just like regular farmland, but when you dig down, it's it's very gravelly. And the vines, they they get, you know, the vines grow relatively big. Um, so we need to space them out and manage the viticulture in a certain way. But the fruit that comes off is really dark and delicious. And then another block uh, that's adjacent to the Martha's Vineyard. So everyone knows uh, if you're a Napa Valley fan, Martha's Vineyard, which is which is known for making really consistently compelling wines. So one of the blocks is just right across the creek from Martha's Vineyard. Um, and that was, that one's really cool because that was planted back in the uh, early 90s by Tim Mondavi. And he was inspired by um, vineyards he had seen in Bordeaux. And these these vineyards are very tightly spaced. It's four feet by four feet. The vines are really small. They don't produce a lot of fruit. Um, but again, the wine's really really concentrated. Then another block, um, end to middle, we call it is Is closer to. uh, It's actually over near the little church, which is across the highway from uh, Oakville Grocery, the little chapel there, and that's right along this creek. uh, Lots of cobble and gravelly deposits, and then we have a couple of older blocks that. um, It's great for me because I, you know, I grew up sort of working on this style of viticulture that was, that was, uh, you know, small vines. Tightly spaced, but one of the vineyards we're working with is 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 old, you know. And it, but it's and it's big vines, um, but we were able to uh, really dial in the viticulture and make some really cool wines from there. So the uh, and then there's a couple blocks that are just known over the years, producing just classic Cabernet Sauvignon that's gone into some of the well known wines that uh, Robert Mondavi was making. So it's just great when you when you pull out the map and look at where we're sourcing from, it's sort of all over the all over the map and uh sort of this patchwork, but when you put it back together again, it just creates this really soft, juicy, dark, complex wine. It's it's fun.
0: Yeah, and that's the interesting thing after talking to a handful of winemakers that have really begun to get that appreciation for as you mentioned when you when you see a vineyard that it's you know you're seeing rows and rows and it all looks the same when you're looking at it to a layperson but you know when you get into different blocks and then you have different soil types and different rootstocks and, and as you mentioned every piece in Tokelon is a little bit different. You have you mentioned over 40 some different blocks and you know different kind of grape sizes. Some are smaller, some are bigger. When you're blending those different blocks together, as you said, it can really uh, create so much nuance and, and layered complexity, which I think a, a lot of people, um, once they learn that, they can really come to appreciate. So this wine, you mentioned the 2016 being the first vintage, scored some amazing points with some of the credits. James Suckling, 99 points. Spectator gave it a 97. And Jeb Dunnick, who I like to follow, 97 points so this wine you know is scoring getting some very high scores with the critics talk about you know and you already alluded to this a little bit the style of wine that you're trying to make and talk about some of the um the the oak
1: and and uh, and blending techniques and things like that so my winemaking uh, has always been very focused in the vineyard so i'm I'm one of those winemakers that pretty much says that the, the style of the wine is going to be dictated by the vineyard. I mean, you can, you can push here and there, but you know, if you have a, a very steep, rocky hillside that's exposed to the sun, you're going to have a certain style of wine. If you have, you know, a Valley floor wine that's producing, you know, big juicy fruit, you're going to have another style of wine and Tokelon, I think there's, I mean, there's no question that there's this thread that runs through the wines that um, everyone makes off this vineyard and I would describe it as being just, you know, very dark, very aromatic. But the, the tannin profile is very, very soft, but more, uh, I guess, refined might be the, the description, I would say, sort of like a cocoa powder tannin. So for me, just trying to knit together the blend that really showcases that is what I try to do. So the winemaking itself is not complicated. I mean, we, we harvest the grapes at night to get them when they're cool. Uh, we put them through a very rigorous sorting process so that what goes into the tank is exactly what we want and nothing else. And then from there, um, we're really not manipulating the wine at all. You know, we're letting it ferment and we're we're tasting often so that we get the tannins right. We we keep the temperature relatively low so we're not extracting too quickly. And then when we feel we have the texture that we want, um, we drain the wine into barrels and. We keep all those vineyard lots separate um, and the press wine separate. I like to keep it separate for a full 14 months because I feel like when you come back to it after that long, you really can taste the wine that came off of these different parcels and talk about the farming and the year and figure out, you know, why the wines might be different. And then we put the blend together and and it stays together again for another, you know, eight months. So we're about 20 months in barrel, 22 months in barrel. It's all French oak, um, pretty high percentage of new oak. Um, I think um, with a lot of Napa wines, I like what the new oak does with the wine. And this is no exception. I mean, the young wines definitely show the oak, but it's a nice, you know, toasty, delicious oak. And that really starts to integrate into the wines pretty quickly. Um, the wine is not filtered or fined. So, you know, you get exactly what came off the vineyard. And over time in the bottle, there might be a little sediment in there, which for me is actually a plus because I feel like, you know, if you were to strip that out, you're stripping out other things in the wine as well. So really just trying to deliver the best expression of the vineyard that we can.
0: Yeah. And you talked about, you know, there's this theme and Quote that I often hear about how wine, great wine, is made in the vineyard, and as you said, that's kind of where it starts, and the most important thing, and everything else after that is more about monitoring and, you know, stabilization and 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 just kind of a hands off, uh, priority there, which makes a lot of sense, and letting the fruit speak for itself. And that end finished product. Talk a little about, you know, I've heard from a lot of winemakers that the picking decision is the number one and most important thing. Do you agree with that? And what are some of the other things that you look for in the vineyard um, kind of for maintenance and management and leading up to that decision?
1: Yeah. So we start actually, um, you know, in the wintertime, we start with the the farm plan, you know, the plan for the year and what's going to happen in the vineyard. And, and, uh, I've, I try to have a, you know, as close of a relationship as I can with the vineyard team. And, and we have a great relationship with the Tokelon team. And so even starting with the pruning and sort of looking ahead and even like this time of year, which is, we're just dialing in the crop, the harvest will be about five weeks, six weeks from now. And so at this time, we're really like fine tuning things and then we're just going to watch the grapes as they ripen. But, you know, this time of year, we're talking about next year, we're talking about, well, what could we do next year, you know, to get the canopy a little more uniform? What could we do, you know, to, to bolster some of these weak areas. And in the winter we're talking about, you know, pruning. And then we're in the spring, you know, just kind of adapting to the season and, figuring out a plan for how to get us to the finish line. So it's, there's a lot of steps along the way. um, But harvest time, assuming you've got it as right as you can the rest of the year. I mean, my feeling is if you harvest the grapes at the right time, then your job is easy in the winery because honestly, we're so blessed with the climate we have here. The grapes are going to be ripe. You can decide, um, you know the tannin profile that you want in the wine literally just by tasting and chewing on the seeds and walking the block so when we bring the fruit in like you say it really is just sort of quality control so if we get that right and we press the wine at the right time it goes into barrel and then from there we're just we're just letting it sit and doing a few monthly uh, quality control measures and tasting the wines and keeping an eye on it and then and that's it it is uh I wouldn't say it's simple, but it's it's there's not a lot of intervention that needs to happen if you get that right. So next, let's
0: get into a couple of the other wines that are coming, Eliza's and HWC. So obviously Eliza Yount and HW Crab, there's so much history here.
1: Yeah, the fun part for me is uh, that this project is sort of evolving. I mean, when we first talked about it a few years ago, we talked about making the very best Cabernet Sauvignon we could from the vineyard. And, uh, I had the idea that over the years we might discover other things that we want to do in the vineyard. And way back when the, the place was called the Tokelon Vineyard Company. So that's sort of the umbrella, uh, winery, if you will. And within that, now we're going to start to introduce some other wines and, I love Cabernet Franc. As I said, it's a variety that I think when it's planted in the right spot in Napa Valley, it produces some incredible wines. So starting in 2018, uh, we we started working with an old planting of of Cabernet Franc that's uh, right in the middle of the vineyard, really. If anyone knows Walnut Drive, that's where you drive right down. And there's the big red barn, the tractor barn uh, that houses all the Tocolon tractors. And then uh, Andy Bextoffer's, uh vineyard is on one side, and the Constellation piece that I'm working with is on the other side, the south side, and sort of surrounding Andy's piece. But right on the south side of the drive there, there's some 20-year-old Cabernet Franc vines that I've had my eye on <laughs> for a few years, and, and we finally started working with it in 2018. So the Eliza's is a blend of roughly half and half uh, Cabernet Franc and Cabernet Sauvignon, and uh to me i just love making wines that express that variety and um and it's it's named after Eliza Yount who uh was the wife of George Yount who was the founder of the little town of Yountville right down the road and uh and George Yount uh sold some land to HW Crab and so he their their family is part of the history of of the property so it's just fun to tie that all together and and name a wine after uh, Eliza Yount, who sort of threaded into the history, and then the other wine, which we're calling HWC after H.W. Crab. That wine, after working with the vineyard for a couple, few years, I and even just immediately walking the vineyard and tasting some of the previous vintages made from this block. There's a there's a selection of Cabernet Sauvignon that we refer to as the heritage clone. Um, It's been planted on the property, um, you know, over the history since uh, Bob and Davi uh, bought it. But it's it's this clone of Cabernet that's very tiny clusters, very low yielding. Um, this, this year in particular, 2020, we're not going to get a lot of fruit off the vines. But when you walk out there, they're literally like little scale models of Cabernet clusters. And the wine it has so much concentration and energy and, And it's just really compelling on its own. So the HWC is a blend basically of almost 100% that block. And so it just has its own unique character. And so the highest beauty is a blend of all the different blocks we work with in terms of Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, But, you know, the HWC will be just from that particular block. So that means you know in some years it might be a really small bottling um but it's fun when you line up the three wines they all have a different story to tell and but still a similar texture and concentration that i love from the vineyard
0: yeah and when can people when are people able to buy these other two wines
1: yeah well that's going to be another maybe 18 months so the 16 is the current release The 17 Highest Beauty, which thankfully has gotten some nice reviews already, Uh, that's going to be coming out in the fall this year. And then uh, the 2018 Vintage, as far as I know, will be a year from then. So maybe not 18 months, but fall of 2021, I believe. Great. And yeah, so those wines are going to be, you know, in
0: oak and... um, you know, in barrel and we're gonna have a link to the website here where people can buy the 2016 vintage. It comes in a three-pack, so you don't have to be on a mailing list or anything. You can you just have to log in and make a profile and then people can can buy these wines from the 2016, the highest beauty. Now looking at the website here and the packaging with this three-pack and the the bottle weight and I'm sure it has a pretty big punt in it for people who don't know it's <laughs> little little piece at the bottom of the wine bottle it's it's kind of how deep that goes and from what i understand or why why do they have a, a punt size that's bigger i know it's for sediment but what what else why else did they do that
1: uh, i've heard a lot of different things but i think it's more for the strength of the bottle it helps to strengthen the bottom of the bottle there because in the old days there would be pressure in the bottle so it helps to uh yeah. displace the pressure that's uh, Interesting. Yeah. And the, the packaging on this
0: just looks gorgeous. And with, like you said, this bottle is is something that's, you can almost one of those that you might want to keep. And it's almost kind of like a, a form of art talk a little about just the bottle and packaging and, and the uniqueness there.
1: Well, yeah, with the packaging and with the whole project, really, we do want to evoke some of the old imagery and the old, uh, labels and ephemera of the original Tokelon Vineyard Company, which was back you know, in the 1870s, 80s, up until about 19, 1915. Unfortunately, there was a fire that seems to be a recurring uh, story in Napa Valley. The, the winery burned down in a fire. But um, uh, the old labels, again, if you look at the history, they have this really beautiful sort of handwritten script and uh the bottle itself is fairly weighty and the paper quality is really nice and there's the wax cap so it really just for me just kind of captures the the quality of the wine the feel of it the the history it's a nice little gift pack if you will
0: yeah so we're going to have a link to the uh, website here people can pick up some wine and hopefully you know listen back to this episode and and, uh, you know, while you're sipping on some wine. But, Andy, lastly, with our guests, usually at the end just like to have a little fun, talk about what you've been drinking lately or any type of food and wine pairings you like. Obviously, I could, with this wine, there's so many things I can think of. I think of, like, grilled meats, uh, you know, barbecue, uh, like a really juicy hamburger or a big ribeye steak or something like that, typical wines I do a big cabernet with but you know what have you been drinking lately it's been really hot so far you know right now maybe cooling down a little bit but anything you've been drinking or food
1: and wine parents you've been doing lately well you know we've been at home so we've been we always cook a lot but now that we we, we haven't really been going out to restaurants we uh you know we we cook a lot from the garden we have a great uh, garden on the property and like you say uh, grilling a a ribeye to go along with whatever's coming from the garden, and then wine wise, you know, we we're so lucky that we've been in Napa for so long. We have um, we always like to say we drink our friends' wines, and we have a lot of Napa wines from the early '90s, mid '90s. So we've been opening those bottles, and then my wife has gotten into uh, lower alcohol wines. We found some Saint Laurent from Austria, which uh, we've been drinking quite a bit of, and that's that's sort of a light bodied red that you can chill. And that's just a nice summertime red wine. So a combination of great Napa wines with some age on them and then some, uh, some hipster European wines, I'd say. (laughs) Nice. Well, that gives some uh, people, you know, an
0: idea of maybe something new to try or definitely uh, some thought there. Andy, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. All right. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us today. If you like the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can support the show by subscribing to our email newsletter for just five bucks a month. Find it on our website at goldenwestpodcast.com. In it, you'll find unique bottles from both popular and undiscovered winemaking talent, among other things. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter at goldenwestpod, or you can email us at goldenwestpodcast at gmail.com. As a reminder, All opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and may or may not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or any other advice. Please eat and drink responsibly and thanks for listening.